All right, guys, welcome to Apologia Radio on the move or something. This is like on the road. That's right. Apologia Radio on the road, in the backyard, next to a pool, around a table. In Jeff's backyard. In Jeff's backyard. It's Phoenix. Jeff's backyard. A well, actually, if you look back. You see, flash and the audio goes out. It's Jeff doing a cannonball in the pool. <laughs> well, if you look over that direction, guys, that mountain right there is South, South Mountain. And uh, that is actually the mountain, the famous mountain where the Phoenix lights were over, whatever those were. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? No. Nobody at this table knows what I'm talking about. I think I, I told you. I know what I'm talking about. Not, 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 not a pro choice people know where you live. Yeah. <laughs> 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 not the ones we're afraid of. It's the, it's the other national organization. <laughs> So it is the night after the End Abortion Now event, um, and uh, we wanted to do the show. We actually were going to record the show like we normally do uh, on Thursdays, but we decided to record it after so we can talk about what happened at the event. And so I'm going to open it up for you guys, and uh, I'd love to hear from you guys and hear your heart and what you're thinking about what happened, and uh, where do we go from here? I feel like I'm drowning or something. <laughs> we are missing one person, Matt. Well, yeah, I took Matt Truella. You introduce everybody. Well, I, yeah, introduce. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, okay, okay. I should know how to. Host yeah, yeah, I'll be a good host. Okay. All right. So to 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 my right is uh, King Ginger. Hi. And uh, next to Ginger is uh, Rusty Thomas with Operation Save America. Yo. <laughs> and, of course, we have Joel McDermott, Dr. Joel McDermott, the president of uh, the American Vision. Glad to be here. And uh, the bear, Luke Pearson. What up? Wearing a Ghostbusters shirt. Yes, sir. How do you feel, uh, Mr. Pearson, about the new Ghostbusters film that's going to be all the ladies? I, I want to just throw my two cents in first. Oh, okay. Um, I'm a bit frustrated that all these new... like this. Let me answer. All these new movies... I'd like to hear your, your, your commentary, sir. Uh, all these new movies, you've got Star Wars, it's a female hero. Yeah. You've got now the new Star Wars, it's a female hero. Yeah, well, and now Ghostbusters, a female hero. Yeah. Which is frustrating because I feel like it's sort of like just a theme. Like they just feel like they have to, you know, sort of do that. Yeah. So I'm, I'm torn. I think it's going to be funny. I think it's going to be really funny because they got a lot of really funny actresses in it. But I'm also torn because... It's different, but actually, it goes back to your to Marcus's uh, uh, article you wrote last year after the Super Bowl. Remember about? Uh, I remember that. You remember that? Remember that though? You remember that though? Yeah. Yeah. Why don't you re- refresh our memories about, about not having father figures? Yeah. And men? Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I talked about. <laughs> <laughs> Marcus is really, he's just, this is his day. He's finally relaxing. <laughs> it's like, no, it's, uh, I, during the Super Bowl commercial last year in 2015, all the commercials were very father-driven and very, uh, had real stable husband figures. And they were the top award-winning commercials that year. And I just thought it was funny that people are marketing fatherhood to sell their products. Like they're selling, you know, if you get this car, you'll be a good dad or you'll have a good family. I just thought that was interesting in light of like all the homosexuality and stuff that we've been seeing in the news. 
that the companies have figured out that strong families still sell. And you were saying how all the all the top TV shows had either like real poor yeah, father yeah. figures or not. Or they the women yeah, this function. Yeah. The yeah. father's always been the, the idiot and the dumb one. And the wife's been strong and in yeah. charge and collective. I mean, like, yeah, he started well, starting with that. Children r- rule the roost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, like I love Lucy. Back way back to the eighties and nineties too. Yeah. Like I love Lucy. You know, she was trying to be the one that could get out of the house and have a job. And Ricky was always seen as the bad guy for not letting her out. True. You know, so she was the OG, huh? The original Ginger. <laughs> <laughs> Queen Ginger. <laughs> Sorry. Rusty, are you a ginger? I'm curious. Not, what you was, your uh, son. Well, what was and the, your son is clearly a ginger. Back in the day, I had Robert Plant type red hair. <laughs> <laughs> so you're a former ginger, is that no, right? A okay. former ginger. <laughs> ginger formerly known Yeah, but Rusty. 13 kids kind of took care of that, you know. Each has a little patch, you know. <laughs> Marcus, what were the dates on I Love Lucy? It was 1950s. So, 50s, and then early 60s, that's when Betty Friedan's book came out, The Feminist Mystique, where she she made the case for uh, that, that the housewifery is drudgery. And that book mm-hmm. was like the manifesto of the feminist movement. And she even went so far as to compare being a housewife and the day-to-day drudgery, being trapped in the house, she compared that to a Nazi concentration camp, famously. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, and today in women's studies, it's institutionalized slavery. Yeah. And the physical intimacy between a husband and his wife is legalized rape. Goodness. This is in women's studies today in colleges. Mm. This is how they define the terms. Mm. And we wonder why we have women who want to be men and men who want to be women. Hmm. Well, and what did, well, how did this start? You said they're, they're oh yeah, the women are Ghostbusters. becoming... The women yeah. are becoming, Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters. <laughs> the women are becoming the heroines. Well, it's, it, it parallels allowing women into the infantries and the military. But in order to make that work, they have to lower the standards of basic training so that the women can pass all the physical standards. Right. And, of course, it's a huge joke, <laughs> you know. And, and how many standards across the board have to get lowered, you know? What does it take to become a Ghostbuster? <laughs> I mean, I guess we're going to find out. We're going to find out. Yeah, but, find out. But, but, but see, the thing is, and like in Star Wars, the Force is this magical thing that works yeah. ultimately through materialistic means. Yeah. It's however many metachlorians are in your blood. Well, uh, it depends Joel, on which episode. Joel, we, okay. we reject the first three episodes. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but that brings up a really... But Liam Neeson, though, come on, man. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's either yeah. supernatural or it's scientifically in your blood. I see. I see. <laughs> can't be either one. But these films, you know, happening around the same time where they want to bring women into the military, into the infantry, put them in a combat situation, I don't think is a coincidence because how, how does the media and arts, you know, how are they used to carry the mindset of the day? Yeah. And so what they do is they keep pummeling you, you know, with these kind of movies, with these kind of messages. We get desensitized to it. It, and before we know it, it's normalized. And this is how they've been rolling for a long, long time. Yeah, we don't realize the power of media. It's not just the power of media. Well, I mean, you realize the power of it, but Christians don't realize that 
the left has known this for a long time, and to them it's just a tool. Mm-hmm. I mean, Percy Shelley, who in the 1830s said that poets are the rulers of the world. Wow. Because they, they're the ones always ahead of the game. They're the ones setting the agenda for the arts for the next generation. Wow. You know? And, okay, so the, the, so the, and he was a, a rank humanist and, and, you know, anything depraved, especially sexually, he was involved with it. And so, so they know it. They know it, and they've been using it consciously for, well, that's 1830s. What is that, 100, well, going on 200 years yeah. now. Right. right. And Christians are just now catching up. Well, we're not even catching up. We're just a handful of us are beginning to realize how this works. Luke, Ghostbusters. <laughs> I know that you won't. You and I probably won't be quoting, quoting any 1930s books on feminism, no. poetry, Nazism. No. <laughs> no, we won't. But I, it's funny, I'm just sitting here thinking we're about to talk about ending abortion. And, you know, we've already been criticized about being anti-women and women's rights because we want to end abortion. A day later. So we, we're we just on a roll here. Um, we've already established how uh, um, we're upset about all the women having leading roles in, in Hollywood. And now we're going to talk about how women shouldn't have the right to murder their child. So we're just on a roll here. So Believe it or not, we like women. We're for women. Love we're women. pro-women. So pro, Very pro-women. <laughs> yeah. Very. Actually, men who believe we're supposed to kind of sacrifice to care for women and children. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And we believe that all women have value and dignity, and in particular, women also in the womb. So um, we did the event. It was seen in the live stream by... Uh, was five we should really count it differently it's 5,000 different streams 5,000 and uh, some of those individual streams were groups and churches uh, watching it together so it was really cool for us like 41 people in one church watching it yeah it was really encouraging for us I mean if you guys would have seen our faces all of us when we were seeing all the pictures come across our feed after the event just getting to see you guys together watching it together it just blessed us uh, tremendously and after uh, the stream was up and finished it takes a little bit of time for YouTube to render it about an hour and a half later there were nearly 3,000 views about an hour and a half later after all that and yeah and yeah so I don't know I try to put it together in my head I wonder how many people actually together saw it and if there were 5,000 streams of the event and some of those events had 40 people 30 people 15 people I don't know it's potentially there were 20,000 people or more watching the live stream on Friday these numbers were revealed I thought Marcus got filled with the Holy Spirit In like a, yeah, in like a, kind of a Holy Ghost jig. In like a first century version. It was yeah. jumping and shouting. I thought the roof was going to come off the yeah. church. Azusa, buddy. I was very happy with uh, how social media reacted to our event. So yeah, it's I very encouraging. Right, what's, the, what's, what's the Twitter I, deal? I, well, well, I just think it's amazing 
where I mean essentially the gear that we had wasn't anything incredible there wasn't anything world-class that we had uh, but like you know 30 years ago it cost you millions of dollars to do what we did that night yeah. you know it only cost us you know I think we spent probably less than 2,000 on all the equipment and gear so no, it was more than 2,000 <laughs> <laughs> You know, who's a CPA here? In comparison, but, in comparison for one event, you're using that stuff. For one event, for, yeah, we're going to use it for, use a for all kinds of things. Yeah. So, you know, so hashtag, in comparison, hashtag to, it's not going to cost us millions of dollars to right. produce events in which, I mean, just think the entire country and people in different parts of the world were watching yeah. a little church in the desert in Arizona. People in Australia, Japan, China, yeah. Chile, India, yeah. Chile. Yeah. Yeah, the, Europe, disi- the disciples, the disciples would have killed themselves for that, and they did. <laughs> yeah, you know, Literally. you know what I mean. And now yeah. we have it. You know, we're we're riding yeah. off of and what. You go they- back to this era we're talking about, the 1950s or whatever, and you know, basically a handful full of people control the media. Right. A handful of people, all liberals, control whatever comes through the media that people hear. They control. What's heard, what's not heard, yeah. how it's heard, how it's spun, uh, and, and all that stuff. And today, with a few thousand dollars of equipment, you can reach the entire world. Yeah, literally. So, so the the gatekeepers are gone. Effectively, the gatekeepers are gone. Old guard, new guard. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah, you know, uh, I met with uh, John Crawford the other day. We were talking about just the decentralizing of everything. Right, like businesses decentralizing, the internet's decentralizing, yeah. even helicopter pilots are struggling because of drones. Mm-hmm. Right, like they, they don't have people. Yeah. Right, they don't have. So everything's getting into the hands of everybody. And you know, he was saying the only thing you don't see that decentralization take place is in the government. Government. Yeah. Right. You know, we're trying to fight ISIS, and ISIS is decentralized, but we're trying to fight them as a centralized bureaucracy. You know, so he's like, it's never going to work if everything else is becoming decentralized. At some point, so does the government. So you're going to change the name of Apologia TV to Gorilla TV, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's basically what it is. You look at the Roman Empire, when it crumbled and fell, it was because the centralized bureaucracy could no longer control everything. Right. You know, the society fell apart and the central government didn't have answers. The same thing is going to happen to the United States. I, I'm not prophesying this. I'm just saying, look what is happening. It's the central government can't control everything. The federal government, the Federal Reserve, can't print enough money to keep controlling everything forever. Right. And it's gonna it's gonna fragment. It's going to go back what to what Hayek called for at the end of the Second World War, for small local governments and local populations to control things. And when you do that. And I, I talk about this all the time. When you get back to restoring America one county at a time, go back and look at the election maps from, well, for many years, really. And if you look at it at the state level, you see a lot of blue states and a lot of red states. If you break that down to the county level, pretty much every state is red. Mm. Pretty much every state is conservative except for the, the counties that house the big cities. Mm. And there's concentrations of populations there that are liberal that in our current system control everything. They can control entire states right. because of their vote. That is breaking down. And, and as my uh, father-in-law always says, uh, Gary North always says, the day that Washington's checks start to bounce, 
Look out. Yeah. Look out. Yeah. The, yeah. The, the, if the church is in a place to have answers for the, for the needs that need to be filled, everything will change. Joel, everything will change. Where do they get those answers? They get those answers from buying my books. No. <laughs> No, but it's based on <laughs> yeah, uh, they get those answers from the law of God, and if the pulpits will wake up and start preaching, I mean, look at the welfare system. We all, every conservative in the country, would on paper will decry the welfare system in this nation, and and the problem has been that the pulpits don't. But all you got to do is read First Timothy, chapter five, and he tells the church, take care of your widows. And orphans, yep. take you ought to have a fund to take care of your widows. Now the church has not taken that verse seriously. I don't even know if the church knows it exists. The church has not taken this seriously for how many decades now? It's oh well, that's what the federal government does. Right. Well, why is the church defaulting to the federal government on these things? You know, it, it needs to stand up, and you don't have to wait for the laws to change. Stand up and start creating a private-based alternative to begin with. And you see this happening. It's been happening for a long time now already with things like Samaritan Ministries. Mm -hmm. Okay. When you do these things and you create the alternatives, you don't have to, when when the crisis comes, you don't have to say, well, where's the answer? The answer is right in front of you. We've already been doing it. Mm -hmm. And the honest, the truth is that's the way the nation was founded back in the 16 and 1700s. And, and people were living that way when, uh, when uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, Democracy in America. Uh, when, when De Tocqueville toured this country in the early 1800s, it, you read his book on. He has these long sections on localism, and he's just blown away. And he says every city in this nation operates like its own small republic, and every locale takes care of its own needs. They don't go to the state. Yeah. They certainly don't go to the federal government. They take care of themselves. Well, why, why do we lose this along the way? Well, we lost it because for various reasons, but one of them is the preachers quit preaching uh, these texts that clearly tell us to do these things. Well, so a, that's where the answers are. The answers are right there in the text of the Bible. Well, there's a big biblical principle that we've ignored for a long time, and that is he who serves leads. He who serves leads. And at one time, the church was the hub of charitable, you know, giving hospitals, orphanages, you know, uh, things of this schools, uh, things of this nature. But somewhere along the line. In America, it got reversed. And I think uh, those who are liberal, I think those who are progressive, those who lean towards communism, they understand this principle a lot better than the church today. And as one of the first things that communism will do is they'll try to take over the charitable giving because they understand he who serves leads. And unfortunately, the church has given up that service to humanity, to, to our nation, and the feds stepped in and filled that void. So when the, when the crap hits the fan, who, who, who does people look to? Do they look to God? Do they look to the church? Or do they look to Uncle Sam? Mm-hmm. 
you know, and, and this is a real problem. And of course, what's happening right now is our government can no longer afford to play God or daddy. And at some point, we're going to go bankrupt trying to do that. Amen. And the church better be ready and better be in place because there's going to be a lot of people who are going to be extremely needy and not just materially and financially because that's just a part of the problem. It's our souls that have become bankrupt. <laughs> that, that, that was a No, that wasn't a rattlesnake. <laughs> that is the sprinklers. And so you guys are you guys are getting all the all the noises in the background. My kids playing, the sprinklers, cars going by. So but that's what makes it unique. Dropping it real tonight, right? Yeah, that's right. This is <laughs> a real on the road. Rusty, it's not just communism, it's all forms of statism. Right. And there's a great quotation that I have in one of my articles on the American Vision website from Hitler. When when he was you know doing what Hitler did, when a few of the church mem- members started to oppose him, and especially in the Catholic Church at the time, he said, "I have this quotation written down." He says, "Let these let these churchmen pipe up and oppose me." He said, "I'll start a median campaign showing how corrupt the clergy is, mm. and I'll expose them in front of the entire nation." He says, that'll be the end of them. I don't, I'm not. And it was so funny because Hitler was not worried about opposition from the church because he had a means of marginalizing it. And they try the same things today. Yeah. Well, in, lar- in large cases, it works because the church is checked out from society right. or the church is corrupt or the church is filled with as much adultery as the country is. Right. But when you start founding churches that take local communities seriously, take family seriously, and take God's law seriously, uh, they don't have that ammunition against us. Right. And, and especially when we begin doing, like you said, begin serving and providing, especially for our own, right. we, we set the standard, we provide the model for what society is supposed to be. So if we can do that, all forms of statism, they may try to oppose us, but they won't have the ammunition if the church is doing what the church is supposed to do. This this brings up, I think, um, just a kind of a worldview deal, because when we're dealing with statism, when we're dealing with humanism and all the different isms, you know, they still believe in salvation. They just reject mm-hmm. God's version of salvation. But they actually believe man can be perfected on this earth, that we can create a utopia. And this is why leftists, this is why liberals and progressive, they all gravitate towards seats of power. But for Christians and conservatives, you know, what we're concerned about, you know, we want to go to church, we want to raise our family, we want to be entrepreneurs. And so we don't want to get involved with all this heady ideas about politics and and things Things of this nature. And so the liberals gravitate towards seats of power because they understand that is the mechanism to implement their version of salvation. Mm-hmm. And of course, we're saved by their liberal policies, by their yeah. liberal laws. And so in their worldview, you know, they're, they're sitting in seats of power and we're like their little guinea pigs. And they just stimulate with all their laws and all their policies to create their little utopia. And of course, every time they do that, 
this is the state playing God. Absolutely. And, uh, and, and obviously, we have been in this scenario for quite some time. And for the first time in a long time, the church is actually, actually waking up. Hey, there is this realm out here called politics, <laughs> you know, that we've kind of, of abandoned uh, because we're just doing normal things. And there's nothing wrong with that. But if you're not salt and light in every area of life, uh, it does create a vacuum. And right now, those that, um, let's just be honest, they hate God and they want to reach up into the heavens and pull him down and replace him. So we got the Tower Babel strategy working in the United States of America. And all I can say, it didn't work for them and it's not going to work for us. Yeah, you made a great point earlier, too, when you said the state is playing God and it's playing daddy. When, when, when us guys, whether you call us Christian Reconstruction or whatever, when you just talk to say we're trying to apply Christian principles to society, the, the criticism comes back every time. The criticism comes back every time that we're being legalistic because we're appealing to the law of God. Yeah? Yeah. Wow. Are we in you know, if no. we were any closer to that, this would be a baptism. Yeah. <laughs> it's sprinkling. It's sprinkling. It's a sprinkling. Or and I think I see in the distance the Phoenix lights. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we get accused of legalism because we talk about the law of God and God's standards. But what you just described is what legalism really is. It is. It is the state trying to say this is salvation by law. Follow, follow the state. Follow our methods. We'll take care of your widows. We'll take care of your orphans. We'll take care of your families. We'll educate your kids. But they're not doing it according to God's standards. They're doing it to, to according to humanistic standards. That's legalism. Yeah. When you start departing from the Word of God and making your, your own laws, man's laws. So get back to the biblical view of what these things are supposed to be, and you will escape legalism. You'll get back to biblical freedom. It was, uh, I think it was G.K. Chesterton that said this, If man will not subject himself to the Ten Commandments of God, he will be subjected to the 10,000 commandments of men. That's exactly right. And, and every time we talk about God's law, there's always a Christian somewhere that says, oh, you want to subject us to all 613 commandments of the Old Testament? Well, first of all, that number is completely arbitrary. Right. And, and, and the Orthodox rabbis who came up with that don't even agree on that number. Right. <laughs> so, right. So, I mean, that's completely arbitrary. I don't know where people, why they keep repeating it. But look... You know, I will take 613 commandments from the Bible any day compared to the 70,000 pages a year that come out of Congress yeah. and tell us what kind of light bulbs we can have, what kind of toilet flow water pressure we can have. Like everything in our catch, lives or you can catch is rainwater. regulated. Yeah, or you, whether you can catch rainwater on your property. It's all I mean, from the sky. It belongs yeah. to us. It's not, it's not a joke. You can, go a to, you can go to jail for this stuff. I mean, right. it's not a joke. The government's people. like, uh, we made that happen. And, You're not and allowed conservatives, to that. conservatives and Christians are like, well, that's ridiculous. Why? But then the moment you start talking about the law of God, they're like, oh, we must submit to the government. Well, fine. Go to the government and, and quit calling it ridiculous because that's what you're asking for. Well, and it, it brings up the, this, this nature of law because God's law is negative in nature. In other words, God says, thou shall not. Yes. Thou shall not. But it's God's 
law that's negative in nature that protects and defends liberty. Okay, and we have lost sight of this. But what's what is human law? It's positive in nature. You got to go to the government. You got to get regulations. You got to get licenses. You 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 got to pass all these screenings and go through all this policy stuff. Okay, for stuff that God has given to us freely. And so th th this whole law issue, you know, negative law versus positive law and the, the laws that God have given us, uh, it's not to oppress us. It's not to suppress us. It's to protect us. Whereas the positive law, we have to go to the government to get permission for what God has already freely given to us. And so positive law is destructive of our freedoms and our liberties. Yeah. Do you know how many times a week Marcus would not get pulled over if we live by God's law and not man's law? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's not just regulations. You got to fill out the form. Yeah. And, 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 and give us copies of the form in triplicate and, and submit this one to that agency and this one to that agency. And you, you'll spend three weeks just doing paperwork, begging the government for permission to something. And at the end of the week, the bureaucracy loses your paperwork. Well, we're sorry. Start over. Oh. You know, and, and you're jumping through hoops and fi finally realize, you know, I'm a slave to the system. Yeah. And but but evangelical Christians don't see it. They're like the Pharisees in that passage in John eight, where Christ says, if you continue in my word, you shall be you shall be free and you'll be free indeed. Right. And the Pharisees, what are you what are you talking about? We're the children of Abraham. We've never been in bondage to anybody. <laughs> and they're sitting there in bondage to the Roman Empire as they speak. And they don't even realize it. <laughs> and Christ is trying to give them, return them back to the basic law, God's law. When other things go off and it's quiet, now I'm scared. Something's going to happen. It went off on the other side of the yard now. <laughs> and and they, they don't realize it. Evangelical Christianity is like that. We're so wed to the empire of the federal government when it comes to welfare and education and all kinds of other areas of life that you talk about God's law and they think, oh, that's tyranny. You don't want to, quote unquote, impose God's law upon us. Well, you've got humanistic law imposed upon you and you don't even realize it. We need a spiritual awakening for people to realize what God's commandments are all about. Well, and that, that brings up the issue, too. You know, if we exchange God's law for humanistic law, are we saying then that we're smarter than God, <laughs> yeah. wiser than God, more loving than God, more holier than God, more righteous than God? In a sense, I think in, in the fallen state, in the fallen world, where we choose to be a law and a God unto ourselves. I think that's exactly what we're saying when we exchange God's law for humanistic law. That's what you're saying implicitly, if not explicitly. Yeah, I mean, if you think about the beginning of the Bible, it opens up. God lays down the blueprint for society. God tells them what they can and can't do. God gives them blessing and a promise of a curse if they disobey. And we flip we flip it. We turn it upside down. And instead of worshiping the God who made all the stuff, we worship the stuff. We don't want God to tell us what to do with our bodies and, 
our unique sexuality and so we start going men with men women with women and we destroy the family we don't want to take dominion over the earth and everything starts to just sort of get crunched together and so that's what society is as we try to say hath God said every day in American pol- in American politics it's hath God said did God really say and then we try to to, to know good and evil we try to, to for ourselves determine good and evil for ourselves yes determine yeah it wasn't just when, when, when the enemy you know made that sort of deal with our first parents he wasn't telling them let me introduce you to the concepts of good and evil mm-hmm. In his deal, he's saying, listen, if you will do this, if you will determine for yourself what is good and what is evil, by virtue of that, you don't need the true and living God. You don't need an objective standard of truth. You can just make it up as you go along. And you determine what is good and you determine what is evil. And by virtue of that, you're a law and a God unto yourself. And that that is the fallen state. And when that reality gets codified into law through government, you are in serious tyranny and oppression. No doubt. And go to James. What does he say? All that is in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. What was it that Satan said to Eve in the garden? Yeah. And how, why did she eat? It says she saw that the fruit was good to eat. Right. Lust of the flesh. Lust of the eye. And that the fruit was beautiful, yeah. essentially is what it says. Lust of the eyes. <clears throat> and that it was desirable to make one wise. That she would know good and evil. There's the pride of life. Right. When Jesus comes and he's tempted in the wilderness, it's the exact same three temptations. <clears throat> yep. Turn these stones into bread. Right? right? Well, there's the lust of the flesh. And Jesus quotes Peter. No, he quotes Deuteronomy. <laughs> he says, no, don't, don't do that. And then, Well, then, then Satan tempts him with uh, all of the, the kingdoms of this world. He takes him to the high point of the temple. Right. And shows him all the kings of the world. Well, there's the lust of the eyes. And Jesus rejects it. And then Satan says, well, just bow down and worship, to me, worship me, and I'll give you power over all this. And there's the pride of life. Hmm. And Jesus rejects it. So the same three temptations, James outlines it, the same three temptations that Eve and Adam failed on, right. Jesus is tempted with in the wilderness, and he quotes the word of God to reject all three of them. Mm. And so we don't realize that Jesus came undoing the fall that you just mentioned, right. and showing us the way, and giving us the Holy Spirit, empowering us to overcome those temptations, right. so that we don't fall for the pride of life. We don't run to the government for power to solve our problems. We trust in him and do things his way. It's interesting, Joe, when you said that, because the temptation was, hath God said. In other words, the enemy didn't attack God personally. He didn't even attack man personally. He attacked the commandment. God's word, yeah. He attacked God's word. Hath God said, and because doubt entered humanity, we fell. Interesting enough, when he goes through those three temptations, our Lord in the wilderness. What's also interesting about that, too, what's interesting about that, the first Adam was in a garden. Mm. When this temptation went down and the world, after the fall, became a wilderness. And it's in the wilderness 
that Christ, the second Adam, takes on the same enemy, takes on the same three temptations, and yet the question doesn't come up, hath God said? He's telling him, God, God has said, it is written. And so Christ settles that argument once and for all, and now the wilderness is on its way to going back to the garden. And that's the road we're on, gentlemen, and we got to advance the cause and kingdom of Christ until it's reality in the earth. Well, yeah, and one of the things I bring up a, a, a lot when I speak on, on the text, the resurrection and Christ as a second Adam, and is the fact that Adam was created as the image of God in the garden, and that's where death entered yeah. in a garden, turned into wilderness. Jesus is the second Adam. He is the image of God. He, he is that perfect image of God that we were all intended to be. Jesus defeats Satan in the wilderness. Jesus is resurrected in a garden. So death was brought in in a garden, and Jesus was resurrected in a garden tomb. And, and one of the things, uh, I can't remember the first place I heard it, but it's stuck with me ever since. Is that when Jesus was raised from the dead, John puts in his gospel that Jesus was mistaken as a gardener. Yeah. 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 And it was one of those things I've seen my whole Christian life. Right. But you don't pay any attention to it. It's just like John just throws it in for good measure. Oh, and she thought he was a gardener. But you have to ask the question, well, why would she think that he's a gardener? What was he doing? What was he doing in the garden? What, 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 would you, what would someone have to be doing in a garden for you to uh, keep in the ground? Keep in the ground. Now, it might be reading into the text, right. but I think that it, the fact that he's the second Adam conquering death, which is where it was brought in a garden, right. and the fact that she thinks that he's a gardener would, would lend itself to thinking that Jesus was doing something to the ground. And I believe that Jesus is in the process of reshaping the earth, renewing the earth, recreation. And I think that Jesus, after the resurrection, is in that garden working the ground because that's what Jesus is doing in the world. Well, he's, re he's, he's reshaping the world. He's renewing the world. And we're in a desert with lawn sprinklers happening right now. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, re renewing I mean, the earth. But you bring up an interesting point, brother, because again, this harkens back the difference between the first Adam and the second Adam because the first Adam, that was his assignment, was to dress and keep the garden. To dress and keep it. To work it and guard it. Exactly. So they think he's a gardener, tells us, A, he's in a garden mm -hmm. at the resurrection. Mm -hmm. And there must have been something about his actions at that point that would lead them to believe he's dressing and keeping the garden. So again, where the first Adam failed, the second Adam obeys and triumphs. So Jesus is concerned with the world. Just, just that statement is actually pretty controversial. The fact that Jesus is actually very concerned with the world now. I, I came from the persuasion and the understanding, not being raised in a church and being taught dispensational premillennialism, that the earth was essentially at this point a throwaway. God was going to just blow it up and restart after a lot of really difficult time yeah. and a lot of loss. And Jesus said, the meek shall inherit the earth. It says in Paul, in Romans, he says that Abraham's, desc Abraham's descendants would inherit the world, not just the land, but the world. 
And so you see in the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, the theme, the pattern is the righteous inherit the world, the wicked are uprooted. You see, from the land. It's in the Proverbs, it's in the Psalms. The righteous are left, the wicked are uprooted. They don't get it. And so Jesus is very concerned with what's going on here and now. It says in Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus is on his throne, putting his enemies under his feet. The very last one to be defeated after everyone is defeated is death. And that's when Jesus returns to deliver the kingdom to the Father. After all things are in subjection to Jesus. And so that brings us to... And abortion now. There are a lot of people who are upset about during my talk. I said, this is not their world. It's our world. Mm. And we control the conversation. We don't let them control the conversation about how to reclaim our world. Visiting. Yeah, they're visiting. Yeah. Yeah, it's oh. It is. It's true. I know, I know it's true, but can you imagine how many minds were tweaked by Yeah, yeah. Well, not even visiting. They're interlopers. Yeah. Squatters. They're stealing. Yeah, yeah. yeah they're squatters. Squatter. Yeah. Yeah. So they're stealing what they're stealing what God's given them. And and people think Jesus, when you read the Beatitudes, they think Jesus is giving this whole new thing. When he says the meek shall inherit the earth, he's quoting directly yeah. from the Psalms. Yeah. Yep. He's applying what was taught. And if you go back and read that Psalm, I believe it's Psalm 37. 37. Yeah. 37 or Psalm 31. 37. I'll tell you what, just read from 30 to 40 and you'll, you'll, find, you'll find it somewhere. <laughs> it is Psalm 37. 37. Five times in, in Psalm and, 37. And read it. Jesus only quotes the part that says, The meek shall inherit the earth. But if you go ahead and read the Psalm, it says, the, the unrighteous will be uprooted. They'll be destroyed, and the meek shall inherit the earth. It actually says a land. Yeah. So, so the cool well, thing yeah. is, is that Jesus expanded it. The psalm says specifically the land. land right. Jesus could have used a different word. He used the earth. Yeah. So that's the glorious thing, is exactly the point. Yeah. The theme is right there, exactly like Joel it's says. Paul, it's Paul who really expands it. He does. Because he takes... He takes the promise that was given to Abraham, which was a specific strip of land. Yeah. And when he he quotes that in Romans 4.13, he says, Abraham was promised the cosmos, the whole world. So that that land, that physical Mm -hmm. land of Israel was nothing but a symbol Mm -hmm. for what God really wanted to do, which was for the whole world. Absolutely. That's right. Well, it's interesting, too. And this is the difference, I guess, between, you know, dispensationalism and and covenant kingdom theology, because every time Mm -hmm. God spoke in covenant, there was none of this neglect, abandon, retreat. Every time he spoke in covenant is God bless you you, like when he spoke yeah. to Abraham, he said, I'm going to bless you and your seed, mm-hmm. singular, and Paul describes that singular seed as Jesus Christ, through Abraham and his seed, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth, you know, uh, Moses and yeah. Joshua, you know, the law was added because of the transgression. Yeah. It was always, uh, we were always saved by grace through faith. That was established in Abraham. But the law was added by trans for the transgression to, so that men would know what sin was, that sin was sin and we needed a savior. The law was added. Right. Yeah. But what does God say to Moses and Joshua? Go in and possess the land. Hmm. I mean, from 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 Adam to Noah 
to Abraham, to Moses, to Joshua, and now in the New Testament when Christ is raised from the dead. He says, all authority has been given to me. Therefore, go, disciple the nations, baptize them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and make sure the nations keep my commandments. So there's nothing from the Old Testament through the New Testament where God has withdrawn this mandate, this commission, this charge uh, to humanity. And, uh, and if we don't get that right, uh, then, you know, what are we doing here? It goes back to what you are saying a while ago. Um, it started off in the garden. God yeah. creates a garden and puts Adam in the garden, dress it and keep it. But it also tells us that garden was a place where there were four rivers flowing out yeah. into okay. all four directions yeah. of the world. Mm-hmm. Right? And Adam fails. Well, Jesus Christ comes back and he succeeds in that same mission. He, he succeeds where Adam failed. By the time you get to Revelation, yeah. what's happening? You've got a new city that descends out of heaven to the earth. Yeah. Right. It's the new Jerusalem. It's called the bride. It's the bride of Christ. Yeah, it's, the new, it's the new cosmos. Yeah. And what is Revelation? Revelation 21 and especially 22, the rivers are flowing out from the same thing yeah. to the entire world. They're lined with trees that are yes. bearing fruit. Come on. And those those fruits are for what? The healing of the nation. The healing of the people in the four walls of the church. <laughs> No, the healing of the nations. So here, Jesus is the new creation. He's the new Eden. He's the new cosmos. Jesus is everything, and he's given us everything. He's given this blessing, and, and now the rivers are flowing. It's really, it's, it's also an application of the, the the new temple described in Ezekiel. Ezekiel, that's yeah. 37 through 40. Where it goes. Yeah, yeah. And it's so awesome because the rivers are flowing out from the temple yeah. in all directions, and he tells Ezekiel, go go walk out. Yes. And and he gets out up to his, what is his ankles or knees and he keeps, and he keeps walking and the water keeps getting deeper. And finally he's like, I can't touch bottom. I'm swimming. Yeah. And that's the vision of the Holy Spirit reaching the entire world. Mm. It gets to a point where it's an overflow. It's an overflow of the entire world. Yeah. So knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Yeah. We'll cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. All the families of the earth will return and worship the Lord. Buddy, well, and even the Hebrews, he said uh, that all men will know the Lord. Yeah. I mean, you know, that brings up an interesting topic because a lot of people think because of what he said, uh, you know, there's a straight and narrow path that leads, you know, to life. Yeah. And there'll be few that find it. And then there's this wide road, you know, and many go down that way to destruction. And so people, I think, just automatically assume that there's not going to be a lot of people who come to salvation in this earth. But you study the Abrahamic covenant Mm -hmm. and you look in the book of Revelations. Mm -hmm. I mean, my goodness. He said your descendants would be like the stars in the skies, like, you know, sand on the seashore. And then in, in, in this great vision in the book of Revelation, it talks about multitudes without number. without number from every tribe, every kindred, every tongue, you know, declaring the glory of God and worshiping him and adoring him and praising him. I mean, it seems to me that the Bible is saying from the very promise uh, to the vision that we see in the heavens, that there's going to be a lot of folk there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I think if you take that, I'll just throw a curveball here. When you it, what you just said does not negate what Jesus said right. about there being few that find it. Right. If you take what Jesus is saying in context, he's talking about he's talking to a first century Jewish audience. Yeah. Did you put okay. that? Did you put that in uh, Jesus versus Jerusalem? You're talking about the book I wrote, right? Yes, I am. <laughs> about that. Available at AmericanVision.org. Joe, seriously, yeah. that helped me yeah. a lot because yeah. I because they always come up with that question yeah. and they always use that one verse and it's you know when you build a doctrine on one verse I mean that's a pretty dangerous practice yeah. but when you look at the whole of scripture yeah. I mean good grief. I, I think it's ethical but go ahead it go is ahead. ethical well the ba- the bottom line is Jesus is talking to a first century Jewish audience to a, a very small local audience when he says that. And when he says, few there be that find it, he's talking about the transition between the Old Covenant and the New, and Thank those you. unbelieving Thank Jews you. that he's calling to, to trust him <laughs> there, and, and he's talking to that generation. The destruction of Jerusalem was coming for their unbelief, and there were going to be few of those that found it. And when you read the book of Acts, there are relatively few that find it. You know, there, there are 3,000 on the day of Pentecost. There are several thousand there afterwards. But relatively speaking, the vast majority of that generation that were under God's final judgment it, for the, the, the covenant, so to speak, um, there were a few that found it. And he's talking to them there in their particular historical context. He's not talking about the grand sweep of history, right, which right. draws on all those prophecies you just mentioned, where the glory of the Lord covers the earth, etc. Yeah. So you put these things in context... And you realize, wow, this is this is big. Yes. It's not and, small. It's big. Yeah, and proof of that too is is he's clearly having a discussion, ethical discussion at that point, because false prophets are brought in in that same discussion, and then and then the, the discussion we all know where he says, many will come to me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, right. didn't we? And he says, depart yes. from me. Amen. I never knew you, mm. you workers of iniquity. But uh, if you look right after Jesus makes that statement about few who find it, he then gives a prophecy about Abraham. And he says, and Abraham's day, he says, many will come, oh, right. many will come and recline at table with Abraham. So if, you, if, north, you, if, south, if, east, if you want to say, if you want to say that, that, that Matthew 7 there is a prophecy where there's the narrow right. in, and well, then you have a problem because within a, really a few steps, Jesus contradicts himself when mm-hmm. he says that when yeah. many will recline at Abraham's table. Mm-hmm. I would say that, that I, that's actually prophecy because he's talking about Abraham and the promises to Abraham and what's to come in the future and many will recline with Abraham mm. and then and the other one is clearly ethical it's condemnation to false prophets it's condemnation to those who say they know Jesus but they don't mm. and so yeah it's many that's it's good. a lot that is good so so could you say there's going to be a lot of folk I mean, a lot at of the folk. table with Abraham <laughs> <laughs> um, so whatever happens to end abortion now yeah <laughs> well so this is this is this is that's in the after show that's yeah the, okay already here we go ready Hang on, let's do a break. All right, guys, you've been listening for a long time. We've been going a lot of different places. This is what happens when you recline at table with Rusty. So, um, oh, I can't play this. <laughs> so we're gonna take and a quick Joel break. We're gonna we're gonna take here. a quick break. I'm gonna take a I'm gonna take a bite of this steak right here that that uh, it's a filet mignon actually that uh, <laughs> that Joel made. I will not eat it. Um, and uh, it's really good. It though. does, yeah. And we'll be right back, guys. ApologiaRadio.com.
All right, guys, we're back. We finished our break, and uh, let's get right back to it, Joel. Well, I was just explaining a whole lot of things that weren't recorded, but but. Um, you said this this movement and abortion now. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's like it's like all the things I was talking about for 150 plus years now. The liberals have set the agenda. They've set the terms of the debate, specifically in terms of Bible studies. If you in, in the entire modern commentary industry, from all the conservative, all the good guys, for the most part, has been done on the based on the presuppositions of the unbelieving higher critics of the 19th century How's that? so well let me let me explain it <laughs> well the higher critics come along and they say how do we know who wrote the bible yeah so you take the book of luke how do you know it was luke that wrote that when was it actually written well we find all these contradictions between the gospels and they it's, it's just constant it's, it's autonomous human reason trying to hack apart the bible who wrote it? When did they write it? Why does it say this? Why does why does John have a cleansing of the temple at the beginning of Jesus' ministry? Why do the synoptics have it at the end? And they pretend like, well, there's a contradiction. And the, the best the conservatives can say is, well, okay, maybe John's writing the story for a certain theological purpose. Or they say, well, okay, Jesus did the cleanse the temple twice. And it's just recorded that way. Well, they have no answer for why he did that. But but if you, you know, some of the work that's done by James Jordan and some guys before us that I've built upon, uh, there's a theological reason in the Levitical law why Jesus cleansed the temple twice. And so, but, but because the entire modern uh, conservative Christians have, have been working off of higher critical presuppositions and trying to answer them on their terms, they always come up with these very poor answers. So if you pick up any modern commentary just about on any book in the New Testament from a conservative guy, a good guy, the first 100 or 200 pages of the commentary is, what is the authorship of John? Who, who wrote this? How do we know? Was it the Apostle John? How do we know that? And there's all these evidential arguments. And when was it written? Well, how do we know that? Well, we have this scrap of manuscript, and we have that scrap of manuscript. And you know, and, and who was it written for? And why? Why was? And they're doing their work based on the questions that were framed by the unbelieving higher critics. Mm-hmm. And and their their methodology is evidential. Mm-hmm. Instead of let's go back and read the Old Testament law understand what the law meant and then read the gospels in the light of that because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law right yes and and so we miss all of these great answers that Jesus was was fulfilling the levitical priesthood and the the corruption that is in a house for example and as I was just telling Rusty in the break uh, he comes to the the, uh, temple at the beginning of his ministry in John and he says he cleanses the temple. He runs the money changers out, and he says, this, uh, uh, this house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. Don't make my house, father's house into a den of thieves. Yeah. And, he said, and then they, when they question him on it, he says, I'll tear this thing down and rebuild it in three days. And that, that completely disappears in the Gospel of John at the end of his ministry. But if you read the synoptics, it comes back because he comes in a second time at the end of his ministry and he cleanses the temple again. 
and uh, James Jordan was the first one I saw that pointed this out. He was fulfilling the law of the house that gets corruption in it, which was a Levitical priesthood role. Right. If if there was mold or a corruption of some kind of plague in a side of house, leprosy or something. The, yeah, le- they called it leprosy in the old translations. The high priest had to come in and pull out that part of the house, cleanse the house of that block or that piece of the house, and throw it away. And he had to go away for a specific period of time. He had to come back a second time and inspect the house a second time. And if he saw the corruption in the house a second time, it says he had to level the entire house and burn it. And destroy it. So now if you put the synoptics together, you have to have all the synoptics together or all the gospels together, including John, to get the whole story. You realize what Jesus was doing. He he cleansed the temple the first time and says, don't corrupt my father's house. He's the high priest. He comes back a few years later, inspects it a second time. He cleanses it, it again. This time he removes himself from the temple, goes up to the Mount of Olives and the and the apostles are like, oh, look at this beautiful temple. And he's like, no, there's not going to be a block left upon another. Yeah, Why? On fire. Because he's yeah. fulfilling the role of the high priest. When, it, when, he's, a, when he's arrested. <laughs> yeah. When he is arrested the second time, or, or when he's arrested in the synoptics, it says they bring false witnesses against him. And what do they say? They have to keep witness. They can't find any witnesses against him. And finally, they find a couple of people who say, oh, this guy is the guy that said he's going to tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well, that's what it says in the synoptics. Well, he never said that earlier in the synoptics. You have to have the Gospel of John when he said that. You have to have all of the synoptics together. You have to have all the Gospels together to have the whole story. Dang. Atheism is okay. stupid. Yeah. <laughs> so the higher critics... Atheism is ignorant. <laughs> so the higher critics, beginning with F.C. Bauer in the 1830s or whatever, are like, who wrote the Gospels and how do we know and when was it written and how, why are there all these contradictions in there? And, and if you just, instead of playing along, all the conservative guys, the entire commentary industry says, well, let's answer these critics. And they start giving a conservative version of answering those critics. Well, the Gospels were written in the 40s. We have this scrap of manuscript. And, and and they completely miss the overall message, which is based on the law. Mm-hmm. Instead of doing our work based on the the methodologies and the questions answered or asked by the atheists, we should go back and do it based on a presuppositional method. What does the law say? And what was Jesus doing? Mm-hmm. So that's why in Luke, when he's on the road to Emmaus with the disciples after the resurrection and all that stuff, and he, he meets up with these two disciples and, and, and he walks with them for a while and they're, they're, they're downtrodden. They're talking about what happened. He says, well, what's, what's the problem? And they're like, where have you been? Don't you know what's going on? You know, this guy was killed. It's all over. Everything's done. Forget it. We, all our hopes are dashed. And then it says, then he began to expound to them everything in the law and the prophets and the Psalms and how he fulfilled it. Yeah. yeah. And their hearts burned within them. And the text says, and their eyes were opened to understand the scriptures. And that 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 phrase, their eyes were opened, is the same phrase in Greek that's used in the Septuagint of the Old Testament in the garden. When the serpent promises them, if you eat of this fruit, your mm-hmm. eyes will be opened. You'll understand good and evil. 
but it wasn't. It was a lie. Mm. And our problem today is we've believed the lie, and we've believed the methodology of the serpent, and we've trusted in the serpent and our flesh and our eyes and our pride, instead of listening to Jesus as the fulfillment of the law and having our eyes opened by him. Amen. So that's why I say, <laughs> how has the entire modern commentary industry been bamboozled? Not saying it hasn't done good. Guys like D.A. Carson, Leon Morse, and a host of other great conservative commentators have done a great job on a lot of issues. Yeah. But, but overall, we've accepted the methodology of the unbelievers instead of let's study the law and the prophets in their own context and then try to understand the New, Co- New Testament in that context. And you made a really, that's amazing. You made a really good connection, though, between this end abortion now issue. Yeah. Um, the ending of, a, the criminalization of abortion, the ending of abortion, the uh, uh, abolition, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. it, it's over, it's done. And you mentioned how. So what happens? We say, let's end abortion now. Right. And within five minutes. The national organizations and everybody else in the world is saying, you can't do that because you've got to work incrementally. You've got to win over the parties. You've got to have clout in the political system. Well, let's quit trying to do things based on the methodology of the serpent and and of the enemy. Okay. Yeah. Let's go back and trust in the law and the promises of God and their fulfillment in Christ and go forward on those terms. (laughs) This is not to say we're going to succeed tomorrow. It's not to say the whole world's going to fold and see our view tomorrow. It's not. There's going to be a lot of martyrdom ahead of us. But let's do it on Christ's terms instead of F.C. Bauer's terms or whoever else's terms that's out there in the living world. It's on the Bauer's terms. Yeah. You know, fill in the blank, which ultimately is, you know, not to equate those guys with this, but ultimately it's the serpent's terms. Yeah. Not, not, not God's law, but man's laws. Not theonomy, but autonomy. Now, now, now you know why I'm always saying, man, I missed them lunches with Joel. <laughs> I miss sitting down and having lunch with Joel in Georgia, man. And, and, and the thing is, everything I've said, none of it's original with me. I've no, learned, I I've, I'm just trying to say this for the sake of those who think, oh, this is a great theologian. No, I've learned from Gary North and Rush Dooney and, and James Jordan and even in some cases Peter Lightheart and, and some people, other people would consider a heretic. But they're at least they're asking the right questions and beginning to, to chart the path for a proper answer and that opens the door for the rest of us to stand on God's word and move forward in those terms so yeah let's do that so let's uh let's talk about end abortion now um finally Hey, are we really going to talk about it? I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, Four hours. That's all right. That's okay. All right. So everybody's listening right now. And again, it's the day after the event. Um, Again, somewhere around probably 20,000 people uh, viewed it live stream. And uh, as of right now, it's about 6,000 new views. The reason we bring that up is that we want to encourage everybody that there is a lot of hope. You know, there was a limited number of followers of Jesus after at his ascension, at his ascension. And they didn't have the capabilities that we have today. They had to walk 
to get the gospel somewhere. They had to get it somewhere, and there was danger on the way. There was difficulty. There were financial stresses and difficulties, and there was false brethren, and there were robbers, and Paul's you know shipwrecked, and he's you know adrift, and he is uh, you know stoned, and he's beaten times without number, and you know how many miles did Paul walk? I think it was over ten thousand miles. I think Paul walked to get the gospel from place to place. He couldn't push a button and send the message across a continent like just by clicking and pushing a button he couldn't we couldn't like marcus said we couldn't do this stream in in the 90s in the yeah without spending a million bucks and uh and and then here's the question i asked last night could we have in the 90s while we were people like rusty were trying to abolish abortion end it could we in the 90s have rallied christians across the nation to have a meeting about criminalizing abortion could we have could we have gotten that message out and gotten churches to gather together to, to talk about it and to watch this stream, even if we had invested a million bucks in doing it? Like, could we have done that? I don't know. But now we can. Yeah. And we did. And, and you know, total price, I'd say, just so every, you know, everyone can realize that it's possible, we probably spent about $5,000 somewhere is around $5,000 to do all this. Wow. Right? So that tells you what God is doing. That's how much it costs me to make babies and murdered here. Yeah. And so that tells you like what God can do with such a small thing. To God, big things are small and small things are big. Right? And so Joel said, and uh, see, I was listening. I stole that from someone else too. Yeah. Yeah. We're all sitting on shoulders of giants. So here's the point. I want to give everybody hope that if you labor and if you sacrifice and if you give yourself away for these children, for the cause of the fatherless, something can happen. And, you know, I I bring it up a lot because I want to give everyone a lot of hope because we didn't anticipate it and we didn't try to work towards it. We didn't try to build them. It just happened. When we started getting involved in the work of bringing the gospel to the abortion clinics, we just talked about it. That's it. We just got on the radio. I said, a baby was saved. Can you believe it? (laughs) Like we were shocked. And then, and as a result of people hearing us talk about it, they started going out to abortion clinics, so over 20 abortion mill ministries as a result of just hearing us. Wow. And last night I saw on, all the, on a bunch of threads people saying, yeah. Jeff, I am going to the mills now also because of hearing you guys talk about it. And that's more. So I don't know. Now I've just stopped counting. It's over 20. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I'll you tell know. you a story. I had a guy contact me the other day because of some stuff I was doing just on Facebook. And he contacts me and says, ask me some questions about his church. He's a pastor and he's a co-pastor of a reformed church in the Bronx. Wow. Wow. And he's like, yeah, we meet in this old dilapidated rundown building. The city's tried to shut us down so many times because our building's not up to code and we keep beating them. He says, but he said, I just want to thank you. Because because of your work and because of restoring America and because of your message and your articles and everything you write, he says, I decided, you know what, I better get involved. So he said, me and my co-pastor started going out and protesting in front of a local Planned Parenthood protesting abortion in the Bronx in the Bronx (laughs) and he says (laughs) and he says that the the entire political establishment here including the cops are in the pocket of Planned Parenthood they're all liberals and he says when we start doing this they, they came out and started harassing us the cops did and this is recent yeah and he says they said you guys can't do this you're violating a noise ordinance 
and he says, Joel, we were doing this while there was a parade going down the street for some leftist cause, <laughs> making all kinds of noise, and the cops singled us out and said, wow. you're violating a noise ordinance. And they arrested him and threw him in jail. And they, of course, they got out because the charges were bogus. They dropped the charges, let him go. He said, well, he said I didn't take it. He said, we filed a, we filed a lawsuit against the police. And he said, and he kept saying this in his messages to me, because of you, because of you, I'm fighting the police. And we're protesting Planned Parenthood because of what you did. And I'm so humbled by this because I'm not like any of you guys. I've never been, I've never been on the streets protesting this stuff. I'm just an academic writing articles. And people get encouraged, but when you say the truth, yeah. people get encouraged and inspired by it. And here's this guy taking the entire establishment in the Bronx, and he's beating them. Yeah, <laughs> because he's faithful. Well, honestly, that's how you take territory. See, it's not just the principalities and the powers with these altars of Moloch. Um, there are the human puppets that also are involved in literally those kinds of battles. You don't see it sort of in the spiritual realm, mm -hmm. but those kind of battles and you win these court cases, mm -hmm. believe me, you are taking territory. Mm -hmm. Every time the church shows up with the gospel of the kingdom and begins to declare the word of God, it is written, mm -hmm. it is written, it is written. Those are like hammer blows. Mm -hmm. I remember when I was with my dad, I used to, he used to have me fix concrete sidewalks where the cracks were. And I'd have to saw on one side and saw on the other side. And he handed me a sledgehammer. Oh, man. Hand me a sledgehammer, you know. This is, this is a guy who learned the value of hard work. Buddy, really. listen. And he'd say, swing that hammer, son. Swing it. And when I would swing that hammer, I was the one that was shaking. Yeah, exactly. You know, I was the one that's shaking. He said, keep swinging. Keep hitting it. And then you hit it, and then you hit it, and then you hit it. Now, what I didn't know to my naked eye, that every time I was hitting that concrete block, there was fissures, little fissures that I could not see. And then one day I showed up, and I smashed that thing, and it just was obliterated. It broke. That... That is the church of Jesus Christ at the gates of hell, doing the very things that we do in church, the high praises of God, the intimate worship, the declaring of the gospel of the kingdom, prayer. The imprecatory psalms. Well, yeah, you, you, imprecatory psalms, and, and then the offer of help, the actual offer of help. You put that together, these are literally hammer blows against these altars of Moloch, these altars of Baal. And I'm, and I'm telling you, once the church crosses that line of obedience, there's a war in the heavenlies, guys. The, the Bible speaks of a spiritual warfare. Now, I, I believe in the sovereignty of God. I, I, I believe in all that. But the sovereign God tells us there's an enemy who has come to kill, steal, and destroy. And we're supposed to be aware of his schemes. And we're supposed to be aware how he operates. And we're supposed to defeat him, you know, by the truth and the love of Jesus Christ. And, and this is what happens. So these guys, I guarantee you, see, this is the first stage of victory. And once they, once they win that deal, you watch how the police treat them from here on out. And what's happened, they're going to gain territory. And they're gaining spiritual and moral territory. And one day soon, 
if they'll stay with it, that place will be shut down. Yeah. And that reminds me of something I keep wanting to say. It's slight, slightly change the subject, not really. But there are a lot of people, when we come out with this message and begin to really push it, there are a lot of people in different as, different parts of the body of Christ who want to oppose us. Yes. Now, now some of them are corrupt. Yeah. Some of them are misguided. Some of them are just wrong. They don't know it. Ignorant. Some of them are... Some of them are jealous. We can make a whole long list of why they oppose us. That's not the point. There are some who are essentially doing the same work we're doing that we might have vital disagreements with on a different level. And when I hear these things, I'm not so much opposed to what they're doing. It reminds me of the book of Acts when, when Paul and Mark could not get along anymore. Yeah. Okay, and what did they do? Did they blow up the church no. and make a, an issue out of it? They, no, they, they had a they had a tense disagreement, and they couldn't. It's, the text says they couldn't get along. Now, is it is it possible that two men who are devout, hardcore warriors and anointed, ordained by God Himself, cannot get along personally? have a difference over agenda, have a difference over how things ought to be done, and yet they're both hardcore, de- de- uh, uh, devoted to the work, and ordained of God. Uh, is that possible? That text tells us yes. Yeah. And what did they do? Did they blow up the church over it? No. Did they attack each other on social media for it? Of course not. Paul, Paul didn't go on Twitter and call this guy out in public. He would have, though. No, no. <laughs> I think you're missing the point, Mark. Marcus, Marcus. No, just the opposite. I don't think he would have. But they sat down and said, look, you, you have your ideas. I have my ideas. Let's part ways. They didn't break fellowship. Right. They parted ways. And Mark went on and did his thing. Luke went with Paul. They did their thing. And they both contributed to the overall agenda of the kingdom of God in their own ways. Joel, and they didn't tear each other down. Let me, let me just finish real quick. There are a lot of, there are not a lot. There are some people in the body of Christ who will look at these divisions and say, well, this group does that and this group does that. And well, this group did it first and this group had that idea. People, that is all beside the point. It's all beside the point. Yeah. You know, we can agree to disagree to use a phrase that's much abused and go out there and, 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 and do our different aspects of, the, the, of God's kingdom agenda in different ways without making it a public thing that we disagree. Mm-hmm. And there are some people in the body of Christ who want to point out, oh, there's a disagreement here. Well, those people are bad because these people did it first and these people are doing it for this reason and they're wrong for that and let's tear them down. Absolutely not. The people who are doing that are the enemies of progress of the kingdom of God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It is 
even those of us who are doing the work of advancing the kingdom, even if we disagree with among ourselves, you go do it over here your way, we'll go do it over here our way, and you know what? We're going to meet in the kingdom someday, and we're going to laugh about the fact that we couldn't get along at one point. And the guys who tried to make it an aspect of division and tear the kingdom apart, they're going to suffer for that. They're going to be judged for that. They're not going to go to hell, I'm saying, but they're going to be judged for that in God's kingdom. And that is something we need to take very seriously. Don't listen to the naysayers. Don't listen to the people who are trying to cause division. Okay? Just accept the fact that some people are doing it one way and others are doing it other ways. And in the end, it is God's kingdom and it is God who's going to bring the increase. Okay. So, um, so, okay, so the, the, the hope we have in real big immediate kinds of change is right in front of us. I mean, it's right in front of us. Um, I mean, guys, when we started getting involved in this, because I didn't come into the kingdom of Christ, I mean, in this fight, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm a recent comer. I mean, three, four, four years, four years on, on the streets in the it, fight. It's kind of funny. We can take all one, two, three, four of us sitting at this table yeah. and the number of years we have involved in this fight in yeah. one way or another. And compared to Rusty, yeah. he's been doing it for 35 that's years. That's my, yeah, that's what I want to say. That's what I want to say. So, so we have, we have now something happening in front of us. And I wanted you to speak to this, Rusty, that, um, we, I've seen dramatic changes since four, four years. Mm-hmm. Dramatic. This wasn't happening on this level. Now, were there people involved in this fight and doing the work? Yeah. But were there churches across the nation glued into a single live stream talking about immediatism and uh, ending abortion and criminalizing it? And how do we do it step by step and listening to the steps and the rules and the scriptures? And that? no, I would say it's never happened before. It's never happened before. So... I wanted to ask you how you feel because you're a veteran. You've been in this for three. Tell us your feelings. <laughs> yeah. So I, I do want to know how you feel. I want to know how it's touching you, and I also want to know what you think. Um, trying to make a grown man cry. <laughs> yeah. Brother, <laughs> uh, it's um, there's two things I've asked of God before He He closes my eyes and sleep. I want to see the end of abortion in America. And I want to see my first grandchild, great-grandchild. I got my grandchild, and I want to see my first great-grandchild. And honestly, even though I asked the Lord of that, you know, you, you look at the world, you look at the circumstance, you look at the situation, and, and it, it looks bleak, you know. But it's really interesting. There's, um, there's suddenlies in the Bible. You know, mm. there's suddenlies in the Bible. Amen. And, uh, but what it's, it, but it's like an iceberg, you know, the suddenly is like what's on top where you see, but there's something underneath that is huge and it's large, you know, it's like in the book of Acts, you know, suddenly the Holy Spirit, you know, was poured out and, and the church, you know, was filled with the Holy Spirit and, and things of this nature. But what happened before that? 
You know, he told him, you know, go to this room, stay there. Don't do anything. I don't want you preaching. I don't want you pr uh, praying for the sick. I don't want you doing anything. I just want you to go there and I want you to make your lives right with each other. And you wait and you pray and you seek my face. And then it says, suddenly it hits. One of the things, honestly, Jeff, that I sensed last night, and I meant it, you know, and that's why I asked people who saw that movie, Woodlawn, you know, what, what, was, what was this kind of message when God was moving suddenly into this racial, racial situation, you know, and the people who were involved in making it happen, they just knew, they just knew, it's time. It's just time. It's time for this to happen. And so all the all the, the work that has gone on before, all the breaking up the fallow ground, all the sowing of the seed, all literally, literally, and I'm saying this literally, literally the blood, the sweat, the tears, the rejection, the beatings, the shunning, the going to jail, demonic manifestations, being hunted, you know, by the, the federal government, all these things that happened through all these years to see this Holocaust come to an end and being rejected by our brethren, being shunned by the church. Uh, being like treated like second-class citizens in the kingdom of God, an embarrassment to the church of Jesus Christ, to be treated like this for decades. And now somebody like you, Pastor Jeff Durbin, inviting me to the table, actually inviting me to speak, and people actually wanting to hear this message at this time. I can't even, t brother, this is like fairy tale world. This is like pinching myself. Is this real? Is this really happening? And it is. And it's just time. And I do believe what Ecclesiastes says, that God makes beautiful everything in his time. And so ears are starting to be opened. Eyes are beginning to see. They're connecting the dots. Now, we have warned. See, and I think one of the issues is we have warned of these days that if we don't stop butchering God's babies and shedding innocent blood, we're going to be subject to tyranny. We're going to be subject to injustice. There's a direct connection Amen. to these things. Blood and now, guilt. The blood guilt. Blood guilt in the land. Exactly. And so now we've been crying out this message for years, but because it wasn't personally touching people or touching the church, like things are happening now, there's an open hostility from our government uh, towards Christians and we're making a conscious decision you know to to put uh, you know abortion or homosexuality uh, to a protected status and literally making a conscious decision to uphold that at the expense of our freedoms of speech of religion and things of this nature and because we have warned of these things, the church is literally starting to feel the effects of it. In other words, they don't think we're like these radical, uh, crazy people like, you know, with the sign, the end is near, you know. 
the things that we have said, the things that we have warned about, they are starting to come to pass and they're starting to connect the dots. And what was so beautiful about last night is we were able to lay this case out uh, in such a, I thought, a very profound way with every speaker. that it's starting to connect. It's starting, to, in other words, it's like the, like the road of Emmaus. <laughs> their eyes are being opened. Finally. Yeah, their, their understanding is being opened. The word is being opened to them, and they're starting to connect the dots. I had the same reaction when I went to my Facebook uh, today. The people who saw this last night, they were sobbing, brother. People were broken, and they were repenting, and they said... I can't just be pro-life in my heart anymore. I got to take action. And that was something that was very good that you brought to the table last night, Jeff. We just can't be pro-life in our heart. You know, that's a preference. But if we're convicted by the truth of how God views this thing, we have to act. And this is what the church doesn't understand. This incident happened to me, and people really need to hear this, because we don't even realize how much abortion discredits the church's witness in the earth. I was one time at a Planned Parenthood in Waco, Texas, and an old black pastor called me said, Reverend Thomas, I want to come and address your people at Planned Parenthood. I said, well, sure. Come on down. I mean, we'd be glad to have you. It's kind of lonely out here. (laughs) (laughs) You know, yes. We're behind you. I go, I know, sir, but you're like way, way behind us. So he comes out, and this is what he says, and this, this rocked my world. I was aware of a little bit of this thing. He went on a mission trip to Africa, and he said, this didn't happen once. This didn't happen twice. He said, this didn't happen three times. He said, this happened a few times, that everywhere he went to preach the gospel to these African people, they would come up to him, certain individuals would come up to him and say this, You live in America. America murders their own children. Why don't you go home, Mm. clean up your backyard, and then come talk to us about Jesus? Brother, he said that, and I mean, our jaws just dropped. And we don't realize if if the church of Jesus Christ is saying with their lips, abortion is murder, then the question is, how come we are not acting like someone is dying? And so here we are to the world. You know, we're supposed to be the the moral conscious, the, the prophetic witness to the world. We're saying one thing with our lips, but we're acting in another way. I think the Lord had a word for that. Mm-mm. Don't say it. You fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. You fill in the blank. And we wonder why we're not taken serious in the world. I mean, our Lord had something to say about this. He said that we're the salt of the earth. 
But if we lose our flavor, there's three things that are going to happen to us. A, we're going to be cast out. Think about the irrelevance of the church when it comes to the United States of America. In our founding, in our development, the church was the hub of the community. The pastor was the parson. He was the person. And they didn't just go to him for spiritual matters. They went to him for educational matters, mm -hmm. understanding about law, government, and things that impacted the community. It was, it, it was just a, a natural act of life that you would go to the church to receive education and things of this nature. Think with me. When's the last time our government or any cultural leader has come to the Church of Jesus Christ for the answers that are ailing the United States of America? The first part has taken place. We've been cast out, right? And what was the other two? Well, that's the last part. Yeah. You will be trampled under the foot of men. So what's happening with the laws of America right now? Our government consciously is upholding and defending and celebrate those things that God considers abominations. And as a result, they must of necessity punish the righteous. That sword is not neutral. So if we're going to be silent and if we're going to be active, especially in the arena of child sacrifice and the shedding of innocent blood, and if we're going to continue to parade our sin like Sodom and the church is going to stay holed up into their building singing songs to Jesus while these atrocities and this monster is being let loose upon our nation. What do we think are the consequences? And these things are upon us, Jeff. And so what we're bringing to the table, we're literally putting our mouth to the trumpet. We are sounding the alarm. And there was a clear message that was given, end abortion now. And we're firmly standing upon God's word. Uh, we're speaking the truth in love. And we are calling this nation to repent. We're calling the church of Jesus Christ to stand upon God's word, not to be ashamed of the gospel. Because here's the deal. We need God's aid and help to save and rescue our nation. We desperately need his intervention. And we think fighting this battle to end abortion or the homosexual agenda, we can do this by denying the Lord, by compromising his truth, by ignoring his commandments and exchange all that for what? Man-made political strategies? Brother, that is sinking sand. And that's why our nation is in the condition we are in. And so what are we calling through end abortion now? We're saying, church, you, first and foremost, we have to get back on the solid rock. We have to stand there. We have to call this what God calls this. We got to treat it the way God wants us to treat us. This is an injustice. And what we desire and what God's desire is justice for the preborn. God doesn't want us to regulate baby murder. He wants us to end it. And if we'll obey the Lord and follow through 
with his commandments, we serve a God who watches over his word to perform it. And that is exactly what we're needing in this day. It reminds me of uh, when we went on a cruise with American Vision several years ago. There was this guy that gave us like a history tour of Boston. Did you say American Vision? Was it not an American Vision tour? It was not an American uh, Vision. Is American Vision? I don't know. Is there a website for that? American Vision. American Vision. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and uh, we went on this history tour with this guy, and I can't think of his name, but uh, he gave this. Was it Bill Potter, maybe? I, that sounds familiar. Yeah, Bill, Bill does a lot of those historical tours. But yeah. Go ahead. Uh, no, no, no. Go no, that's right. So, because I'm glad you said that because I want to get him on the show. But uh, he was talking, we were walking through the graveyard in Boston where Samuel Adams and all these guys are buried. Mm-hmm. And he was mentioning that in order for a nation to be built, there needs to be certain kinds of people. And some of those people were the orators, the pastors, the lawyers, and the communicators, these, these certain kinds of people that were required. And I, and I see that we have that now. So we have you know, people like Jeff, who's the pastor and who's very pastoral. And then we have people like you who are academic. And then you, who's a great communicator. not pastoral? Come on. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, you know so maybe sometimes. <laughs> and then people like... He was last night. Yeah, yeah, yeah seriously. Yeah, great yeah. job last night. Yeah, you were. And, uh, and, then, and, then, and then Rusty, who's a communicator. He, I th- he speaks out of the mouth of asses. <laughs> Why you that you my name? <laughs> <laughs> so, Thanks, Jeff. Yeah, so, I would, you're already being criticized for saying the word damn. So not, <laughs> I would rather be the ass that was spoken through the guy who had to hear it from an ass. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Joe. That's a great point. I just, I just I see all everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so I just see that like we have all those people now and then we have a way to to we have the internet which we can unite all those people together mm. and we can get this message out there back when the country was founded everybody was essentially in one place they were in you know the northeast that was essentially where everything was happening and now we can u- unite and work together on a much global scale with the internet and we have all these kinds of people that's God's raised up and so I don't think there's there, there isn't any excuse anymore that's right that's right it's a unique time and uh, I want to talk more to Rusty about that so Rusty you you've been uh, doing this for more than 30 years more than 30 years and you have stories that will make your hair stand on end and people see you I'll tell you so I've said this before not everyone's heard me say it so I'll say it again when Marcus sent me the preview of Babies Are Murdered here he sent me the link for me to preview it and I was I dropped my son off at his co-op He's homeschooled, and I um, I sat there in the parking lot in front of this church where the co-op takes place, and I started watching the the film on my my cell phone in the car. And when you started talking, um, I think midway through the film, we specifically started talking about 
they're playing right here yeah. and then we're killing them right here I mean I I, I honest to God I, I get I get, Luke knows this I get teary eyed sometimes and I have a hard time getting myself together and I try to watch it in sermons like last night I almost lost it at the beginning and I wouldn't have been able to make it through mm-hmm. but I was it's rare that I weep and I was just weeping over that that part and and people see you and they see how passionate you are and they see you as just radical you know they see, they see us as radical and I'm but but you have seen things and been a part of things that none of us have even touched yet and um, we were told to cut you out of the film Rusty there are people that are like we will not support this film as long as that guy's in it because that's what you were saying is just way too crazy well and we told him we were told him to go pound sand so 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 is what I'm getting at you've seen things and been a part of things that add to your experience that make you the man that you are today that give you the passion that you have today I want you to talk about a particular story um, you've had these dead babies the smoke the ash from their bodies falling on you and I want you to talk about that what you're talking about is Wichita, Kansas and uh, this particular abortionist George Tiller Uh, the interesting thing about that abortionist there was probably more gospel presentation to that abortionist than any abortionist in the world And honestly, when he was shot to death in his own uh, church, I know a lot of pro-life people kind of rejoiced in the sense that not necessarily that he was murdered, but that he wasn't going to harm another child. I actually wept. It broke my heart. Because I was always hoping he'd be like a Manasseh. If you remember King Manasseh, you know, he was the king that filled Jerusalem with innocent blood to the point that the Lord unleashed the Chaldeans and judged Israel for it. But Manasseh repented at the end of his life, and the Lord restored him as a covenant son. It's an amazing, amazing story. But the point is this. You talked to Tiller. I wrote him letters. Uh, We sent him books. Uh, We went to his church. We we, we spoke with his elders. You know, you, you have a man who professes Christ, and he's killing children made in the image of God, and you're accepting his blood money. You know, in the church of Christ, there's such a thing called discipline, that when somebody is in blatant sin, you hold them accountable and you, you bring them to repentance. Well, part of our church is pro-life, you know, part of our church is pro-choice and, you know, yada, yada, yada. And that's not what our church does. And I said, whose church? Your church or the Lord's church? Because in the Lord's church, the Lord's Church disciplined those who are in blatant sin. So we, we did everything possible to try to meet this brother or this man and a brother. Uh, 
But what was uh, what's interesting about Tiller and about Wichita, you got to remember Wichita, that's that's the heart of America. That's the heartland. And George Tiller and his abortion mill didn't just represent like a citywide Moloch. You know, when I say Moloch, I'm talking about the ancient evil of the altars of Moloch, because that's where the pagan nations and eventually Israel sacrificed their children uh, on that altar. And of course, the lie of Moloch was give the child to me so all will be well with you. Mm. And, and here's the deal. The, the setting may have changed. We may have, you know, beautiful buildings with pictures on their walls and elevator music uh, in our offices. But it's the same spirit. It's the same lie. And it's the same bloody practice. Now, the way we communicate that lie, sweetheart, you're too young. Give the child to me. Honey. Think about your college. Give the child to me. Think about your career, sweetheart, and give the child to me. Think about stretch marks. Give the child to me, and all is going to be well with you. So his little Moloch, it wasn't just city, it wasn't just state. It wasn't even just national. This was an international Moloch. This was the high place of the entire earth, and it's literally in the heart of America. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that's a demonic strategy. That's where it's set up. So people, Jeff, flew from all around America, um, excuse me, of other nations, and flew into Wichita, to murder their babies up to the ninth month. And this is what Tiller would do. When he did late-term abortions, and he sometimes he, char he charged forty to $50,000 per abortion. Goodness. What he would do, he would murder the baby, and we actually had pictures of this. He would murder the baby, and the parents who agreed to the slaughter of their own children, they would take these late-term abortion babies and put them on baby blankets with little baby toys, and there is dad and mom surrounding their dead baby, taking a picture, and then Tiller would call in the apostate Baal and Moloch priests they would baptize the baby, and then they would throw the baby, literally, just like Moloch of old, throw them in the fire. He had an on-site incinerator. So imagine this, Jeff. Just like you do, you, you, you go out to the abortion mill, right? We go out with our signs. We go out with the proclamation of the gospel. We're praying, right? We're pleading with, with parents, please don't do this. This is going to not only destroy your child, this is going to ruin your life. And we plead with them, we'll help you, but please don't do this. As we're praying, as we're singing, as we're preaching, there is ashes literally falling on our bodies. Ashes that are 
being blown in the people's yards, in their pools, on their trees, on their houses, on their cars. And these are literally the remains of these children. So as we're breathing so we can speak the word of God, we are breathing in the remains of these children Mm. that these people put to death for blood money. Now, we're going back to Wichita for our national event because they reopened Tiller's Mill. But here's the thing, gentlemen. They don't want just an operational clinic in Wichita. Tiller has become their martyred saint, and this is his shrine. For the abortion industry, this is... To have Wichita abortion-free is... They cannot be demoralized to that extent. They have to. They must have their high place. And so we got some unfinished kingdom business to take care of. And that's why we're going back July 16th to the 23rd. Because when we first went in, went in there in 1991, there was five freestanding death camps in Wichita. Every one of them was shut down, including Tiller's. Wichita had peace for four years. But like I said, the powers of B could not let Wichita go. They have to. They have to have their shrine. They have to have the Moloch back. They have to have the high place. And literally, when you go into that clinic today, they literally have a shrine to Tiller. Mm. When, you, when you walk into the, the offices uh, to get your abortion, you have to walk by the shrine to Tiller. You have to pay homage before you give your children to Moloch and shed blood. Jeremy, the man that shot him. I know his name is Scott Roeder. Uh, never met him. The police have tried to associate him with us. And here's the interesting thing, Jeff. We went, we went, went up to Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And I, I normally don't think I'm going to die doing this. <laughs> but when I was in Jackson Hole, Wyoming... They were taking their vehicles and they were trying to run us down. There were six separate incidences and I noticed the police did very little to discourage that kind of behavior. And because they were sort of silent on the issue and we were getting death threats, people like were calling us and shooting guns, people were driving by doing this stuff across their throats, pointing their fingers like they're gonna blow us away. And I'm thinking, I felt like I was in a Frank Peretti novel because this is Jackson Hole, Wyoming. It's beautiful. It's like a resort area up in the the mountains. And yet it was a very dark place. Well, here's what I didn't know at the time because we had to actually bring a lawsuit against the city because they unjustly arrested us, they threw us in jail, they did all these different things, so we brought a lawsuit against them. Come to find out, the FBI passed a memo to the chief of police 
telling this chief of police that Scott Roeder, the man who murdered George Tiller, was one of our guys, that he was associated with our ministry. And here's the thing, Jeff, with all of their technology and spyware, we have been at this for close to 40 years. Now, we have been arrested numerous times, jailed numerous times. Not one conviction of violence. Not one. And if you want to put it in a civil rights movement kind of deal, this has been the most peaceful Mm -hmm. civil rights struggle in the history of the United States of America. Through Operation Rescue, we've had close to 80,000 Christians arrested trying to save the pre-born's lives. Not one conviction of violence. And not only were we nonviolent, anybody who named the name of Christ that would dare become judge, jury, and executioner, we publicly rebuked them and renounced them. So we not only kind of, uh, you know, took care of our own, right. but we said, listen, Jesus Christ didn't come to this planet, you know, with a, a knife in his teeth and a Molotov cocktail in his hand. He didn't lay down the lies of his enemies. He laid down his life for his enemies. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And no greater love hath any man than he laid down his life for his friends. Okay, and so we were willing to lay down our life, our freedom for the pre-born. But here's the deal. Chet Gallagher, he, he's my assistant director. He's a former police officer. I said, Chet... You're a chief of police. The FBI comes in and gives you a memo like this one. What are you thinking? He says, I'm thinking we got terrorists in our community. Mm. And so what this, the FBI, what these guys have been doing, they were trying to associate Scott Roeder with us. And if anybody should know better. It should be those who actually spy on us and hear our conversations and see how we live our life. But yet, if it's the template, the only problem is it puts our life in danger. Are they spying on us right now? I wouldn't doubt it. <laughs> I wouldn't doubt it. Listen, I know. I know. Listen, I doubt it either. Guys, listen. I know firsthand that the White House monitors me and I know the Department of Justice monitors me firsthand. I, I, would, I was ministering as a, uh, right near my uh, home. There's a youth prison. The prison invited me in because they, the, they had um, prisoners from Louisiana. Remember when Katrina hit? Well, they took the youth from Louisiana, brought them to Texas. Now, they didn't mind going to jail in Louisiana but they did mind being moved from Louisiana and coming to Texas. So they were having riots, they were belligerent, they were unruly, and so they called me in. And they asked me if I would minister in this pod because no other Christian minister would go in there. I said, absolutely, I'll go in there. Mm -hmm. So I went in there, I went in there for a year, God completely transformed the pod. Now, they did come in maybe three times to try to rescue me because there was some rioting going on. But the guys would never touch me. They loved me. Okay, but they, you know, they're going to protect me. 
point of the matter is, there was an abuse case uh, that happened at this prison physical abuse, sexual abuse, the Department of Justice steps in, they go through the list of ministers, they see my name, and they say, he's gone, get him out. Hmm. And I had three superiors come to me and said, Rusty, when you came to this prison, to that pod, this was the number one problem pod in our system. They're not even on the list anymore. They're no longer a threat. They recognize God's work through our ministry and how it transformed that pod. But when the Department of Justice came in, they got rid of me. White House, there was this guy named Jeff Ziegler. He, uh, he used to give this prophetic prayer plaque to each president. It was a kind of photo-op kind of deal. He had a different prayer plaque for Obama which was basically, if you do right by God, we're praying for you. These kind of prayers. If you do wrong, it was imprecatory prayers. And he wanted to present it this black to him. <laughs> <laughs> so he contacts all these ministers and he asked me to sign onto this plaque. I said, sure, I'll sign it. So 300 ministers sign it and he's supposed to have this photo op with Obama to present him the plaque, right? So then he calls me afterwards and he said, Russ, I just don't want you to sign it. I'd like you to come to be a part of the team that presents it. I said, I would love to do that. But honestly, if they find out like I'm part of the team, it might like destroy your mission. He goes, oh, that, that ain't going to happen. Don't worry about it. No problem. He calls me two weeks later and he says, Russ, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not after you. Exactly right. And they were quoting verbatim, the White House quoting verbatim some of my newsletters. Right. So then. They tell him that I shouldn't be a part of the team, and he's not going to throw me under the bus. He said, no, I want him part of this team, all right? So he doesn't throw me under the bus. So we go to the White House, okay? We're entering the White House. I'm like the last guy. Everybody's getting in. No, this is no exaggeration. I gave them my license, and as soon as I gave them the license, alarms. Stop. Don't move. And next thing you know, they're stopping me. Uh, and they're telling Jeff Ziegler, the guy who's leading the team, he can't come in. And Jeff, to his credit, I kept telling him, honestly, I don't need to go, Jeff. I don't want to destroy your mission, you know. But for whatever reason, he really wanted me to be a part of this team. And every step of the way, he would not throw me under the bus. Mm. So the, the entire team comes out of the White House. And uh, so they try to come up with plan B, how to get the plaque to Obama. Uh, the other part of the story is I had wrote, written Obama a personal letter. And I basically told him, I said, Obama, you're God's man. You know, he raised you up not to bless America, but to judge America. But if you personally repent of your sins and surrender your life to Christ, perhaps he would use you to bless America again. And so I wrote him this personal note. And I was my hope was to do this picture with him, present this plaque. It was a prayer plaque, but it was kind of really a prophetic plaque with almost imprecations on that. Uh, and, uh, and this guy was a bold man of God to do this. He really was. 
And uh, so we were hoping to do the plaque and give him my personal letter. Well, that didn't work because the whole White House thing blew up. Oh, blew up. I didn't mean that. <laughs> you can't say that. You can't say that. <laughs> you know, so uh, anyway, they sent us down to that faith-based initiative, that federal program, and we met with the department head that ran that agency. And the deal was... Uh, we're supposed to give the plaque to him along with my personal letter. He was going to make sure that Obama got this deal. So we're out there. It's freezing cold. We're in suits. It's raining. The wind is blowing. And we're going down from the White House to find this, you know, this other agency, this faith-based agency. We finally find where it is. We knock on the door. Probably by that time, they had already been uh, warned that we were coming. They wouldn't even let us into the house, into the building. Uh, but he did come outside. You know, we went through the ceremony. We, you know, passed the plaque to him. I gave him the personal letter to Obama. Uh, we dropped it off. I doubt very seriously if he ever saw hide or hair of that thing. Uh, but the bottom line, I came away, you know, understanding. And our, you know, we're not a large ministry. We don't have national backing. We don't have funds. We don't have that many followers. We're just a tiny little ministry. And yet, they. They knew our teachings. They knew uh, the message that we were bringing to the table in the United States of America. And as a result, we were banned from the White House. Marcus, how can people now get involved with us, with those in a nation who are seeking the criminalization of abortion, the end of abortion in our nation, how can people um, get moving with us wherever they're at? I think the first thing is to really understand the power that God has given them at their fingertips in terms of social media. Uh, I think last night there was nothing on my feed but end abortion now stuff. Like I couldn't even find a cat picture or a meme about, you know, the president or anything. Cause it was just all everything, everything was in abortion now, hashtag in abortion now. And so that to me was like, man, we really have a lot of power that God has given us at our fingertips. We just got to use it. <laughs> we just have to come together and figure, figure out, Hey, what is this tool that God has given us now? Like how, how can we use this? Because the truth is that the secular media hasn't even figured out how to use the Internet for their stuff yet, right? So you have like ABC, CBS, and NBC, and Fox. They were making all this content, and they were distributing it through their channels. And then Netflix comes around, and Netflix says, hey, I'd, we'd like to air your content. And so Netflix pays them a lot of money and gets the rights to air their content. And then suddenly Netflix says, hey, we're going to make our own content. And now the networks are freaking out because now Netflix is making content better than them, and nobody's watching the networks anymore. So the Internet's really empowered people to create content on a on a micro level and have it viewed a lot 
me and Carmen, every single day when we come to the studio, we watch this dude named Casey Neistat. Now, Casey Neistat used to have this massive HBO deal. And he's decided, he figured out, he was like, hey, it takes me three years to make a TV show for HBO. So from the time they, they think about it, they shoot it, they edit it, the bureaucracy at HBO watches it, and then they advertise it, and they put it on the air three years for one episode. And he realized that, hey, I can make a blog every single day, and, I, I, and it goes up within 24 hours. And, and so he left HBO for YouTube, and he's got a really good video where he talks about this, and he says that YouTube is the new mainstream media. That is the mainstream media. And so we have at our disposal now media that isn't regulated, that isn't uh, distributed uh, through certain channels where anybody can watch it. And, and so think of the power of that in terms of, you know, a biblical propaganda, a biblical ability to spread the Christian worldview in a way that's unfiltered. And, and I don't think YouTube's going to last forever for us, for Christians. I think they're going to start coming down harder maybe in the future. So that would be a warning sign to those who... Um, have the money and have the capabilities to start thinking, okay, we still have the internet. We'll always have the internet. The internet will never go away. How can we create something that's maybe bigger than YouTube? Like, what's after YouTube? Social media only has about five years in it, and YouTube's on ten, right? So, so Christians now should be thinking, okay, in bigger strategies, I would say, than just putting videos on YouTube, how can Christians become not just carry the water to people, but also own the pipes that distribute it. And so, so those are the two venues, distribution and content. And, and, and so we need to be thinking, okay, how can we be the distributors and how can we be content creators? And I think, at, I think you know, at Apology, we've really found the way to do that in terms of like all access. Then in fact, that if YouTube were to shut us down tomorrow, we still got, our own website where we can distribute content just as we want right and so and we have a way that's funded by our viewers and our listeners so really there is there's no more limitations on hindering the gospel worldview from going out to all people now we just need to mobilize to those areas into those venues and to use them in the way that the world does right so Casey Neistat a million views a day just dropping a video he, and he makes, you know, three million plus advertising endorsement deals a year just from YouTube ad, ad revenue. So as Christians figure that out and say, wait a minute, like there aren't any broadcast net. We don't have to worry about whether or not Fox News uh, sees what we're saying anymore. We don't have to be on Fox News to be relevant anymore. Once we figure that out we'll be able to control the conversation, which is what I spoke about at the end of abortion now, is we can change the conversation. We can control the conversation. The fact that a billion-dollar industry like Planned Parenthood had to put out signs that say healthcare happens here in response to people with, like, cardboard signs that they drew, mar- <laughs> they, they drew with markers, and they're having to respond. Like, that should tell Christians out there who think that the media is defeating them that it, it's, that's not the case. 
<laughs> right? The one thing Christians are good at is they are good at mobilizing around causes that they agree with. Like, that's the one thing, like, throughout history, like, through the Reformation and through all these things. We've been really good at, like, making sure our message is out there. Even, you know, the 12 disciples changed the world. So we can figure out, hey, the Internet, I think you said, did you say it? Like, Jesus gave us the Internet? Jesus gave us the Internet. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus gave us the internet, right? Like for the Christians, right? That's for covenant members. And so the fact that we have that at our disposal now, we have full range access to it. The government hasn't shut it down. And the message of the king. And And I would say it's going to be, it would be very hard for the government to ever shut down the internet in a nation that's had it, right? Like North Korea has never had it. Right. So Saudi Arabia, they've never had it. So it's easy for them to shut it down. But now they have a problem in all these Middle Eastern cities and in, in, uh, in, in the Middle Eastern cities where Google is marketing cell phones that cost five dollars to people and they're smartphones. And so the government's having a problem now restricting information. So so that that's. That's for us, because <laughs> like the printing press and the internet and all these things. When when the internet was freely, you know, when, when the printing press happened, Christians became Netflix. They became the content distributors and the content creators all at the same time, right? And so we were talking earlier about decentralization. Everything's being decentralized now, and so now it's the responsibility of the Christians to not ignore that. So when you have Fox News and NBC, MSNBC and CNN, and they're trying to report news that's happening on Twitter. (laughs) They know they're in trouble. You know, so there's a great documentary on it when the Boston Marathon bombings happened and CNN and MSNBC and Fox News were reporting false information on Twitter. But that was the information they had right then, right there. Mm. And, and a lot, some of it was wrong. Some of it was accurate. There were photos and pictures. And, and so there was an, a momentous sort of shift that they knew right away was happening and that suddenly the people were reporting the news and not them. And they were actually just grabbing the content from the people and distributing the content that the, the people have already distributed. So if Christians really understand that, and we can figure out how to, how to mobilize and to create our own distribution channels and to really get to that point to where the secular news networks are looking to us for news content, just like they were for the Boston Marathon bombings, that would be huge. We saw that. It started with 9-11, really. With 9-11, when everybody had video cameras, and there wasn't really the internet. YouTube wasn't around then. But if, the, if 9-11 happened today, it would be completely different and a lot broader impact than back then, because back then they were still selling the tapes that they got with their video cameras to the major news networks. But today, that wouldn't be needed. Right. So, so we look, we're in a good position because the secular news networks don't know how to harness the Internet yet. They haven't figured it out. And Christians haven't figured it out. So that makes us for the first time in a long time on equal planes in terms of distributing worldview content. Like, and we should just be like the printing press again and just so, take over it. Like so you said, Jesus made it for us. He did. America became so, yeah. And abortion now. Okay. Yes. What people can do because that was all very important. Jeff, yeah, yeah. Jeff, so, can I say a couple yeah, of things yeah, on yeah. that? Um, 
that's good on the social media aspect, but when you look at what we were trying to communicate uh, last night, I think it's twofold. First is a call to the church to spiritually inter interpose. In other words, to do the very same things that we do in church and engage the culture, uh, go to the exposed areas, go to the abortion mills, uh, and be the gospel witness that we need to be, both prophetically in, in, in warning about this great evil and this sin that they will be held accountable for, and yet still bring the good news of the gospel in the hopes that we can uh, spare lives and even see souls, you know, birth into the kingdom and added to the church. So we want the church to end her silence and her inaction and to plead the case of the fatherless to win it. And again, this is not by pro-life by preference. It's pro-life by conviction. And if you're convicted at this uh, term pro-life, then you must act. You must act, or again, your witness rings hollow, okay? Number two, and this was huge, the doctrine of the lesser magistrate, where we're now calling upon civil officials in their capacity as the lesser magistrate to also interpose uh, in the ministry of justice where God has ordained them. So... Last night, if we can, that those two elements, the church and the state, the church exercising uh, the ministry of the gospel, the ministry of the love and truth of Christ, and then the ministry of the state, which is a ministry of justice to interpose, if we can convince church members that are in the church and Christians who are in the position of being the magistrate to simply obey the Lord in these two arenas, then we can see abortion ended in the United States of America. Yeah. Marcus, um, how do people harness the tool that you talked about with end abortion now? Well, one is... You know, it's amazing to me. I'm, I still can't believe that we own the domain endabortionnow.com. <laughs> I remember when we, we know because because we were talking about like, well, what do we call this? Is it abortion is murder? Like, what do we call this event? And we were saying end abortion now, and we were like, yeah, but that website like will never ever be available. And Carmen like did a search, and he was like, oh no, it's available. I'm like, dude, you misspell it because <laughs> there's no way that website after 40 years is still up, and it was available. And so I tell you I, a lot. I think we need to get behind a right. message. First thing we said, like that's the key. Is like we need to get behind a message. Like we have to focus everything to one thing and if it can be focused to that three those three words end abortion now or just like the four words babies are murdered here if we focus it to a simple message a simple campaign and not only do we 
hashtag that and Facebook and Twitter and share the video, the live streams and all that stuff, which would to do that. I think we also need to send a message to the people who are in power now, like the pro-life movement specifically, like, you know, National Right to Life and, and uh, you know, 40 Days for Life. And we need to let them know that we're not listening to them anymore. They need to know that there's, and this is the paradigm shift. This is the paradigm shift. So, so essentially, in 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 terms of like a, a a free market sort of boycott needs to happen to where they know that people are not listening to their message anymore. People know that they're wrong on the issue of uh, the lesser magistrates. We there was it was amazing to me before the event that. Um, Life News started attacking us on Twitter mm-hmm. because somebody just sent them, hey, this is going to be interesting to you guys. It's a pro-life news story, and and we need to talk about it. Immediately attacked. And we were immediately attacked, and, 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 and the response was that, you know, we're, we're not attacking you guys. We're just telling you guys what we're doing, right. you know. And so they know they know that what we're doing is dangerous to them, right? Because oh, yeah. the, right yeah. to them, right? Yeah, yeah. Not to the it's it's dangerous to the pro-choice movement for sure, but it's not dangerous to pro-life. And so so that that's that's what essentially needs to happen is we need to let them know, hey, look, this is this is the message you guys need to talk about now. Or, or we're not behind you. We're tired. There's a lot of people, a lot of good people who are supportive of 40 Days for Life, who are supportive of, you know, Life News and all the organizations that really genuinely want to see abortion ended yesterday. Yep. But they just don't know anybody else to go to, and they're not getting the lesser magistrate information from them. And Matt... Truella said something that was just tremendously powerful yesterday, and I think he said it in passing, but it was the I think it was one of the most amazing things that was said all night. And he said that in the course of 43 years, not a single civil civil magistrate has ever exercised its their power to stop abortion. Wow! <laughs> like Actually, that. There, there was one. Now he left. He left the police out. And he purposely did that yeah. because there was one police of, police officer, and he's the assistant director of Operation Save America, Chet Geller. Jeff, you need to have him on. You have to get his testimony. Did we get him at the NRB conference? You, 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 no. You, you met him when you were in Tennessee, when you, when you interviewed Mark Pody. Okay. You met Chet That's Gallagher. Right. Brother, you and he need... was at the NRB conference. Yes. They, yeah, they were there. Yes. Well, I met him the next day. Yeah, but you, you got to get his testimony. Yeah. He because was he was, as a police oh, officer, yeah, yeah. as a lesser magistrate, he literally crossed that line. And he had a prepared statement. And he told his fellow police officers that were at this rescue a couple of things. Gentlemen, I am convinced that behind these walls, a murder is taking place. And I am also convinced that these people in front of these doors are doing our job for us. And so instead of arresting them, Mm. we should join them. And, buddy, you got to get his testimony. It's a powerful, powerful testimony. So here's like pieces of the puzzle, at least as far as I'm seeing this, this continuum, the past, present, and future. Mm -hmm. He's my assistant director. 
he, he, he was one of the first that committed that prophetic act that stepped over the line as an official capacity as a lesser magistrate to intervene to defend the preborn. And now all these years later, here's Pastor Matt Chirella, mm-hmm. who does the homework, due diligence, digs this doctrine out, okay, writes the book. And then in the last couple of years, here's Pastor Matt, here's OSA, here's Apologia, mm-hmm. you know, all the pieces of the puzzle fallen together. And it's, it's an amazing example of God's providence in history. It truly is. Yes. This is prophetic. I'm yeah. just telling you, this is prophetic of what God is doing right now. So, yeah, so I, I would just say that. How do they harness it? Well, they already have it, right? So they already have Facebook. What do they need to do? What do they need to do with their churches? Well, I, I, I think they should, if, they, if their church is not gathered to watch the live stream, they should watch the live stream now. Right, with groups with, 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 groups, with the people from their church yeah. and stuff like that. Already? That needs to happen right away. And then, and then uh, from there, they need to use the hashtag in abortion now. They need to point people to apologia, um, to all the resources we'll keep, we'll keep that we have on the board. Keep them up to date. We are going to be the new cycle for this. <laughs> like we're going to be the people who are reporting on what's happening. And so, so that needs that needs to happen. Joel, and, you're crazy. What are you doing? I'm just kidding, man. Yeah. <laughs> Joel, Joel just pretended like he was going to jump in the pool. <laughs> so no way. It's too cold. I'm so freaking tired, man. I can't even stay up. Yeah. It's not even funny. Okay. So let's wrap it up. So we're going to wrap it up. But that that's essentially the main thing is is we have all the tools at our disposal. We just need to use it. So I would say send. Uh, the end abortion now stuff. Send the talks. We're going to put out the talks individually. Um, they're going up. They, you know, essentially by the time this podcast airs, they should already. Most of them should already be up. That we haven't even talked about the discussion with Herb Titus, which I think was just unbelievable. Yeah. Which we're Herb Titus is a stud. Yeah, he and <laughs> dude. So so Herb Herb Titus spoke on the constitutional laws in regards to. The, the role of the state versus the role of the judicial uh, Supreme Court and, and how courts do not make laws and how the states can actually overturn a Supreme Court ruling, especially in the state of Arizona, when the law is already on the books. I don't think we touched on that much at the end of Bush and Now. I did, I did quote it. You quoted it. I did say that, it, that it's against the law yeah. currently in Arizona. It's currently against the law in Arizona to have an abortion. Yes, it is. And, and so it's a lot easier Easier to change the law, like Herb Titus said, in terms of DNA yeah. and, and stuff like that. Just yeah. So it's just a matter of educating the people and getting the information out and becoming the distributors of content and not letting, not believing that Fox News and CNN are the ones that are speaking behalf <laughs> of yeah. the worldview. Because it's not true. It really is not true. They, they look at the major news. Uh, over the past few months has been stuff that Donald Trump has said on his Twitter account. (laughs) Right? You guys have a Twitter account. You know, people have a Twitter account. 
And 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 so, so there's nothing separating you from Donald Trump in terms of, uh, you know, the ability to get popular. Same platform. Yeah, it's the same platform, yeah. and so same. it takes a lot of work and effort. So, but but you can build a platform right away. Okay. So that's the thing. Sign up for all access to for seven ninety five a month. Yeah, it's a minimum donation. Well, yeah, and, we, yeah. Let's real fast. Seven dollar ninety five cents. You might be thinking, well, that's a minimal donation, and I'm help. I'm 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 part partnering and ministering with Apologia Church and being part of all this. The truth is, is that that money that was given by all of our all access partners paid for and abortion now. So the live stream that went up and all the equipment we had to buy, the flights we had to pay for, the food we had to pay, everything we had to do to make this happen, happened because people actually partner with us. Yeah. That's so, how it happened. Yeah, and then think about it in the terms of, you know, in the past when you were donating to a Christian ministry, they would say, oh, if you give your money to us, we'll give you a book or like, uh, or, or you'll get blessed by God. Like it was just, yeah, the, the, the mustard seed sort of stuff. And we're saying, no, seven ninety five a month, you give to us, you get a TV show every week, you get content, you get the Apology Academy, you get all this stuff in return every week, you get new stuff. In addition, what's extra, we put on the internet national events like and stuff like this. Like, I don't think there's really ever been, like, this is a brand new paradigm shift in terms of how nonprofits operate in terms of what they provide to their donors. I think it's a brand new model that's just, like, I'm really excited that, like, we're pioneering this. Like, it's re it really is unique. Yeah. You know, there's no other ministry that's really doing that. So. All right. So... This is Apologia Radio extended on the road episode with the motorcycle driving by right now and uh, Joel about to take a dive in the freezing water and uh, what else happened tonight? Uh, dogs barking, sprinklers going off. Rusty the storyteller. Rusty the storyteller. And the 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 right beneath where the Phoenix lights happened, whatever military operation that was. Lights, it's aliens, I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, Joel. Uh, all right, Luke the Bear. It was an awesome week, right, man? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, by the way, you mentioned you real fast. And we're we're going to wrap it up right here. But I, we obviously, when, when we said we're doing it, obviously we were going to bring Rusty out. But the first person that said we need to bring Rusty was Luke, just so you know. Oh, was, Luke's the man. Yeah. Oh, man. We need to tell uh, Apologia your audience about the declaration okay the declaration the you confession wanna, you want to when we work, work all the details right. out we'll yes. do the whole show it, on it just, let's just sow the seed right here it's right coming now. it's coming it's coming this is just an idea but it's coming right yeah we got it talking about yeah right? we got to build on it yeah but just want to play a seed it's coming a manifesto a confession that's what you're talking about right yeah okay a declaration manifesto confession uh, throughout history, when there was a need for a paradigm shift, men of God took on the evil and the tyrannies of their day, and they declare where they stood in God, in His Word, 
and for the truth and for the gospel. Mm. And I believe we are in that time, gentlemen. We are in that time. So, Apologia, you need to get to work. Formulate this thing. All right. Call it the Backyard Confession. The Backyard Confession. <laughs> all right, guys. Sign up for all access. ApologiaRadio.com. Thank you guys for blessing us and praying for us. Uh, we felt it, and we're grateful. So, thank you, Joel. Thank you, Rusty. Thank you, Marcus and the Bear. And we'll catch you guys next time. ApologiaRadio.com.